0: Hi Rocco, I'm finally here. I'm on time. I know you're proud of me.
1: All right, everybody say something.
0: Something, something. Rocco.
1: Hello. Something, something. It's me. Testing.
0: How's my mic the sound?
1: Brown Fox. That was so in sync. I don't know.
0: <laughs> this is the kind of show you're on, Daniel. We're going to ask you questions like icons question mark. Yeah. Stuff? <laughs> Sounds
1: great. Stuff? I'll we'll say yes. Yes. Good. <laughs> Alright, is everybody ready?
0: Alright, Rocco, no clowning around this time, man. This is right. okay.
1: All right. Oh, wait, wait.
0: Welcome to another episode of Destination Linux Podcast.
1: Welcome to episode 62. This week, Your hosts are Brian, Zeb, and Michael, and we have a special guest, Daniel Foray. How you doing, Daniel? Hey, how's it going? Oops,
2: I'm doing good. How are you doing?
1: (laughs) Awesome. We're so happy to talk to you, man. Um, For those that live under a rock and don't know who you are, you are the founder and one of the main developers of Elementary. You've developed several apps on your own. You, you're a writer, you write music, you have a YouTube channel, you got every social media outlet <laughs> under the sun. So before we get
2: into the questions, I got a quick fire question for you. First distro ever? Uh, the first distro that I ever tried was Corora Linux. It was the XGL live CD demo. Nice. Wow. Rocco,
0: I don't think that should have been the first question. When I was going through his history here and looking it up, the first question that really came to my mind, the first one I actually wrote when I did this document is, why does he have to be so freaking talented?
2: I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> what's that What's that quote? Something about talent is just sustained practice, right? Well, there you go. That's it. Kept practicing. Yeah. Just, just keep doing that thing you want. Why do to you
0: do? have to do so much practice? <laughs> I,
2: can't stop, won't stop.
0: Well, if that logic's true, Rocco, shouldn't you guys be good at Rocket League by this point? Um,
2: okay, <laughs> next question. I
0: am. <laughs> that was my question, but my next question, Daniel, is: uh, I was listening to another interview earlier in the week, and you know, we talked about you talked about in the interview that you had, you know, started with Linux forking Nautilus, and one of the things that you were doing when you were forking it is to beautify it. Um, so at that point, you know, when you think about elementary, you think about how beautiful it is. So I kind of find it interesting that that's how you kind of started was beautifying something to begin with. But what is that process or what was the moment when you were forking Nautilus and working on it and beautifying it? You're like, you know what? I'm just going to make my own distro.
2: Well, um, I mean, I guess, um, the way that we, we kind of approached it because back then it was, um, I think actually the first project that I really contributed on was probably docky, but, um, So at the time I I had like near zero development experience. Right. And so there was actually another developer that was interested in um, coding um, for Nautilus, but uh, I had just started pushing out designs on DeviantArt and we were looking a lot at like how much of the window of the file manager was used for UI controls over content. And so we're really looking at like, how can we maximize the space used for content and and make the UI controls not so crazy. But hmm. um, the point where it turned into, like, we should do a distro is when we started to have, like, a suite of apps. We started attracting attention from different people who were like, yeah, we should, we should really concentrate on making really great apps. And uh, we had enough people together that we were like, okay, you know, how do we distribute these apps? And uh, at the time, the only way to distribute your applications was to, like, get them upstream into, like, Debian. You know, And that's pretty clunky. And and so the fastest way to get our apps into people's hands was, oh, we'll spin a distro and pre-install it.
0: Nice. Makes sense.
3: Yeah, and that, that follows up to the next one, Next question. is: um, Since you wanted to make a new distro, there was already existing DEs like GNOME and KDE. What made you decide that you wanted to do your own DE instead of just using one of the other ones?
2: Uh, well, the first release that uh, we shipped, we actually did ship with GNOME 2 and um at the at that time it was when gnome 3 was like first starting to come out and unity was first starting to come out and there was a lot of like kind of um i don't know if division is a good word to use but there was a lot of people in the ecosystem that were like hey you know this is a time for us to rethink what we think the desktop should be like and Um, we weren't really super excited about those directions that different people were going. And we thought like, well, what, what do we want it to be like? You know, what do we want to do? What would we do if we could do anything? And that's how we built Pantheon was kind of looking at like, what is everybody else doing? What are the things that we like from the desktop that we have? And what are the things that we wish we could do?
3: Right. So because of the DEs were already in these massive changes. It made sense to just, you know, if you didn't like what they were going with, it makes sense to just go and make your own because, there, there would you'd have to do so much work to compensate for whatever
1: they're
2: doing anyway. Yeah, it's like everything's changing anyway. This is a really good point for us to think about what we want to do.
1: Sounds good. All right. So the the interview that Ryan had mentioned uh, was on Nerd Continuity, I think it was. Mm-hmm. Yep. And you know, you had mentioned about Gentoo being a, a starting point for learning how distributions work, how Linux works itself. So. Is that a better option or maybe a, a different option than, say, to learn Arch? Or is there a difference in learning Arch and Gentoo? And, and would that be better
2: in learning to code? So I've actually never run Arch before, believe it or not. Wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but um, I, I guess I got into Gentoo just because Corora was based on Gentoo. And I wanted to see like how it worked more. And for me, like what I got out of the experience was, was realizing all the different parts that make up the desktop and how modular everything is. And kind of the realization that like when you're running windows, it's monolithic. You just get this one big thing and that's how windows Mm -hmm. is. And when you're using a Linux desktop and especially something that's more um, like Gentoo or Arch, you get to kind of go through and go, you know, okay starting from this base this kernel or just getting to bash or then you go okay well i want to have windows on my screen so i need a window manager and uh, you know if i want compositing then i need a compositing manager but maybe i want a tiling manager and you can do that too and then you think about like oh well i want a lock screen so i gotta add a lock screen it really shows you that um everything is made up of tons of different parts
0: You know, I want to go back a little bit to another question, because in the Telegram group, there was yesterday, there was a a discussion amongst them talking about when should people go off and create their own distribution. And we have so many, one point was there are so many distributions out there right now. I wish people would focus more on solidifying what we have. And then the other point of view is, you know, this is the whole point of Linux that we have all these choices. Being in it, being a kind of a foundation distro at this point like elementary is, what is your take on the balance between that? Should the people like you who are talented and have the ability to do this stuff be focusing on creating their own distros? Do you wish there was more kind of collaboration going on in there or, or, you know, refinement of the products that you have within Um, Linux?
2: I think that from the outside looking in, it probably looks like people are more divided than we actually are. Uh, we have conversations with people from different distros all the time and uh, talking about like the different tools that we're using or how we can collaborate. Uh, collaborate. Sorry, I can't talk. Um, you know, I've, I've had um, telegram conversations with Martin Winpress a lot recently talking about like, oh, what are you working on? What are we working on? Like what are interesting things to both of us? And Uh, We try to reach out to people that are working on Fedora and to the Solace guys. And and so I think that, um, you know, collaboration is still high, even though we're doing things that are different. And I also think that um, if you have an idea that you really want to, like, pursue and find out where it goes, then I think you should do that because – Um, even that we see stuff like Unity, where a lot of people look at Unity and Canonical and they go, wow, like they did a bunch of work for no reason and it failed and now it's bad, right? But it's not really like that. Like They did a bunch of interesting research and development and kind of put this product out into the world and people looked at it and received it in different ways and all of us learned things. We learned things that we could do better and we learned things not to do. And by them doing that experiment, it made all the other distros better.
0: Nice. That's a great way of looking at it. So uh, kind of a follow-up question going back to uh, where we were. You, besides being just a developer, you also obviously create music. And I listened to some of your music. It was great. Thanks. Um, What are some programs that you use? Because people love to know programs they can use in Linux to do stuff. I assume you do all of your music development within Linux at some point. Uh,
2: So what are some programs that you use for your music? So I I wish I could say that I did all my music stuff on Linux. (laughs) I know. I know. It's it's not there yet. I don't feel like – I think that almost everything that's on my SoundCloud is in GarageBand. So I have like, (laughs) I have a, I have an appliance that just I open it to use GarageBand and in my shame in the corner. But
0: my shame. Hey, every (laughs)
2: once in a while I boot into that other operating system to play a game. So you're not supposed to. You're not. You're not alone. (laughs) Like God, I have to use the fruit box. I know the
0: fruit box. (laughs) So is there a favorite music that you listen to while you're coding?
2: Uh, recently, I've been getting super into listening to like uh, lo-fi hip-hop beats. Nice, I think that's like super fun because they're like super relaxing and chill and it's um, like you can just put it on in the background and, and there's a lot of channels on YouTube and stuff where they kind of just mix into each other and, and it's, it's super relaxing.
0: Well, that's mm-hmm. one of the most important things as a coder to have that music.
2: Yeah, yeah, that's what I was gonna say.
1: I mean, it's like everybody around that that I talk to, that we talk to, will say, "Hey, I listen to this while I'm coding." So it's like mm-hmm. a, a thing, I guess.
3: Yeah, and then sometimes you want to have some like fast-paced music too. <laughs> I mean, at least I do. I'm not sure if you do, Daniel, but like for me, like I've had times where I've just coding in some like low be- low leaves low uh, low level low uh, beats per minute stuff, and then all of a sudden put dub dubstep on because reasons.
2: Yeah, you, you got to get hyped sometimes. Yeah, You're exactly. over there slamming you on your keyboard. It. Yeah, both keyboards. Even every once in a while, you just got to have Luda on in the background. So get...
3: <laughs> exactly. Like uh, this so just to go back to the uh, the collaboration thing, I just wanted—I was just curious that uh, are there any developers that right now that are that inspire you to do what you do, and um, you know, if if so, is there anyone you would like to collaborate with that you currently are not collaborating with?
2: Um, that's a tough question. It's there. There are a lot of people doing really interesting things right now. And, um, I think that there's a lot of people that you can look up to in different ways of how they approach problems or like the kind of impact they're making, or like, I really enjoy, um, seeing, for example, some of the ways that guys like Martin interact with their communities. And, um, I really enjoy seeing, Like some of the things that, um, Ikey gets really excited about on the (laughs) low level side and, and how passionate he is about like performance and things like that. So I think there's, Mm -hmm. there's like really interesting people that are, that are kind of role models in different ways for the different like areas of expertise that they have. And I think that, um, like as far as like collaborating with people that we're not currently collaborating with, um, I think. The biggest ones for me is I, I would like to be closer to a lot of upstream projects. I feel like we value a lot um, when we are closer to um, the people that are working on Vala or g Live or uh, AppStream or things like that. Like it's It makes our products better and it makes their products better, I hope, um, when we're able to work more with, with the upstreams.
0: Nice. Yeah, that sounds good. So what was the inspiration for the name elementary OS to begin with?
2: So originally um, the name came just from an icon pack that I did. And um, when I did it, the idea was that I wanted all of the symbols to kind of boil down to their basic elements. And I wanted them to be like really easily digestible and quickly recognizable, and one of the things that was really important to me was like um, trying to use color theory. Um, it seemed like at the time that a lot of the popular uh, icon packs out were really like homogenized in their color. Like it was like, oh, this is a green pack. This is an orange pack. <laughs> yep. And when I did elementary icons, I wanted to be like, well, you know, why is this icon green? Why is this one red? Like, can we use color to communicate effectively? And can we cut down on the amount of shapes we have um, by using color and and how how expressive can we be by having things that are more simple and like boiled down to their essentials that's, being
3: created with a, a, a more of a confined way yeah,
2: yeah. that's awesome
3: i like it nice. like, so it's more of a it's a it's a nice way of saying simplicity
2: yeah yeah it's like yeah well but not in a like a um so the, the hard elegant. the hard thing with the word simplicity is people think of like they associate it strongly with like minimalism. Yep. Yeah. Right. And it's not just about having less things, but being able to do complex things in a more streamlined way.
3: So like elegance through simplicity.
2: Yeah, something like that. Isn't that okay. the mints uh, <laughs> tagline? <laughs> oh, no, I have no idea. <laughs> it might. It might be. I don't
3: know. Oh, I, oh, I think that's. <laughs> Through something, came elegant. How yeah. like dare you mention that
0: in the elementary OS <laughs> interview, Michael? That was that that's was ridiculous. <laughs> oh
4: man! So, with elementary, um, obviously, lots of people talk about it in lots of mediums, um, and the one thing that they all agree on is it's absolutely beautiful. So, how did you go about designing one of the best looking? OSs within Linux. How did you, is it a, a, a very large part of your design process or does it just happen because you're all super talented?
2: <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I think probably the biggest advantage that we have over most distros is that we write our own apps and our own um, desktop environment. And when you're doing visual design, there's only so much you could do like at the skin level. Um, when we do visual design, um, we can go all the way down to the bottom of whatever application we have and say, you know, well, okay, well, we want this element to be here or there, or maybe we want to replace this element with a different set of elements or like we can do a lot more than just change the colors. Mm -hmm. So, um, I think that that's probably our, our big advantage and why our design language is so strong throughout our apps is. Is because we're able to do way more heavy lifting and and bake our visual design into uh, the programming.
3: Yeah, as, as a follow up to that, it, the 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 way you have like the, when you're talking about the color theory, there's a lot of like color based um, design as far as like you know, it seems kind of counterintuitive because it's not it's it's so uh, abrupt sometimes. Like the like, what made you do the decision to have like. Like bright colors for action buttons, like the uh, when it's like it looks like, like when it's destructive, it turns red,
2: yeah. So that's actually um, something that I think GNOME started doing first, um, oh, okay. But um, I think that that's that's become kind of a common pattern though in a lot of other platforms too, right? And it is like you said that that you get that stronger connotation from from the color when we use consistently, um, you know. An error color and say that, hey, anytime we have uh, elements that are dangerous or destructive or, you know, we're going to use this color to indicate that, then we can kind of build that relationship up with it.
1: Well, along with uh, elementary being beautiful, there, there also comes people who will say, hey, you know, elementary is beautiful, but it's not customizable. So, there's a balance there for every distribution to decide on, whether it's KDE that has a ton of options or it's GNOME that has very few options. Some people prefer a lot of options. Some people prefer it to be sim- simple. So I've heard you talk before about human interface guidelines and what you focus on when you're developing elementary. So can you can you tell us or tell the, the listeners, what you mean by human interface guidelines and how you strike the balance of options versus simplicity.
2: Yeah. Um, so a, a human interface guideline is kind of just a set of things that we agreed upon are probably good ideas. And uh, most platforms have them. And it just kind of describes like ways to deal with common situations. Um, and so like, one of the things that we have in our in our human interface guidelines is we talk about like how you should structure an alert dialogue and so that anytime you throw up an alert dialogue we know that uh, it has an icon that um, describes or tries to describe like what application it came from or what's happening you know if you get a password dialogue then you get a password icon right Uh, it has primary text so that it states the full nature of the question or the problem that it's presenting. It has secondary text that talks more about what are the consequences of selecting different actions, and then it always has uh, an affirmative action that's your primary action for the dialogue. It always has a cancel uh, option next to that, which lets you do nothing, and then if you have tertiary actions, this is where they go, and if you have actions that don't close the dialogue, this is where they go. So it's kind of like just a way to take um, all of these design problems off developers plates and go, here's a template. You know, you just want to do the thing. You don't want to have to do like a ton of design research. Like we already did that for you. You know, here's how to fit in platform conventions. Right. So th- that's kind of the purpose of like the the HIG human interface guidelines. Um, with respect to like customization and settings in particular, um, one thing we try to talk about a lot is kind of drawing a balance between um, what things are design and engineering decisions and what things uh, make programs more accessible to more people. And um, we actually have actually been having more discussion about it recently because um, Mark Brown, uh, who does Game Makers Toolkit, did a super awesome video recently about settings in games. And um, he used a lot of really awesome language to describe it. And so we're, we're kind of looking at a situation where um, every time you add more settings and more options, you add more test surface area, you have more places um, where bugs can hide. Uh, each option increases the number of possible combinations exponentially. So it becomes really difficult to deliver quality software when you have a ton of options. So we have to kind of um, look at it from a technical perspective there, but also from a human interaction perspective, um, some options can be overwhelming um, or like just, just things that you as an engineer have a better insight than your user does about the inner workings of your application. And so we have to think about like, are we trying to shovel off design and engineering decisions that are hard onto our users, or or when we add this option, does it help make our application more accessible to more types of users? That's kind of the balance we try to strike.
1: Very nice. pretty difficult. But <laughs> <Yeah>. I, <laughs> well, yeah. anytime anytime you're trying to strike that balance, it's going to be difficult. And no matter which well, yeah. way you go, uh, you're going to have people that are upset about it or don't like it. So if you go with all the yes. options, you, they're going to be upset. And if you go with none of the options... You know, yeah. That's way, the best it, it,
0: explanation it, 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 I've heard of the situation because I never really thought about it from the standpoint that every time you add in those customization capabilities, you're adding in more potential breaks, more potential bugs. That doesn't mean you don't want it, but that's something you have to consider when you're trying to give somebody a complete package that they can just go and use without having those negative impacts you know, right. to the experience.
4: Um, so, you, Ryan, you talked about... Um, having a a, you know some bugs within the software there um when i was looking i couldn't find a reference to the or to an official elementary forum so how do you go about um providing a method by which your users can come to you and say look i've got this difficulty i can't quite understand this so you haven't gone with a forum i don't think so what, what is it that you've gone with
2: so we have a, a Stack Exchange website, actually. And if you go to our website, we have a, a link up in the header that's the support link. And mm-hmm. on that page, you can find some documentation, like getting started and installation guide and stuff. But there's a link also to our Stack Exchange page. And um, we like Stack Exchange better than a forum because uh, it helps surface common questions. And it gives a way for you to easily see um like at a top level, what are the answers to the question? Instead of having to like scroll through tons of pages of a forum to find like where actually the answers and what's parts is discussion. Yeah. So like, I think sack exchange works really well for the support situation. Mm-hmm. Um, but also um, you know, I, I think like a forum sometimes just tries to be a catch all. and um, we have like different types of communities. So like our translators community hangs out on their translator slack. Um, and we have like a Reddit community and that's a great place if you just want to like share stuff or like just talk to each other, you know, stuff like that. Or we have like a Google plus community or like we have different types of communities that people are interested in for different reasons instead of trying to shove everybody into a single forum.
3: Yeah. Is the, is the stack exchange that, have two questions on that, uh, but is the, is the stack exchange for elementary kind of like the way ask Ubuntu is where it's a community driven thing or do the developers j- jump in as well?
2: Um, it's mostly a community thing. I think that um, sometimes you'll see developers jump in. Like I've definitely seen uh, Jeremy who is the files maintainer um, answer questions there. And I think um, uh, David Hewitt uh, who's generally contributes to a ton of different stuff, but he's been doing like a lot of work on like photos and code. Like he's jumping yeah. in there and,
3: that's cool. Uh, my my follow up question for that is, how did you convince Stack Exchange to let you do <laughs> to have a Stack Exchange? Uh,
2: actually, there was a proposal um, that somebody else did. We weren't even thinking about it. Someone just came up like one time and shot over an email, and he was like, "Hey, I created a proposal for a Stack Exchange. Like, what do you think?" And we we're like, "Oh, yeah, that's awesome." <laughs> and and nice. so we just kind of like put it out on all our different social media accounts, and they have. Like you have to meet a certain amount of people that say they'll yeah. be involved with it, and there's like some requirements you have to go through and stuff.
3: But yeah, yeah. I looked into it one time to try to make one, and I was like, oh, that's too much effort. I'm gonna yeah, I'm just-
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And they have like certain requirements to get out of beta. We've been in beta for like three years on it. Oh my gosh!
3: <laughs> so- <laughs> All right. Well, um, was, uh, speaking of the of uh, you know with current beta stuff. Uh, So Juno is is currently in beta and it's coming. We've been talking about Juno uh, on Destination Linux for like the past couple uh, topics or in past couple episodes. And there's a lot of really cool things that are coming as far as features coming in Juno, uh, like nice improvements, uh, cool animations and stuff like that. And I'm just curious, uh, what are the changes that you're looking forward to the most?
2: Uh, I mean, one of the coolest ones that's like a super subtle and simple thing is just having nightlight. Like I really dig that because, yes. you know, if I'm up late, you know, I, I really enjoy having nightlight on my phone. Um, and especially yeah. because like uh I, I'm pretty sensitive to light and I get headaches, you know, staring at the screen too much. So it's super helpful when you're just like, I need my screen to be as red as it possibly can be right now. You know, turn the brightness all the way down. Like,
3: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> is nightlight like a, a, a custom built thing into Pantheon or is it like using red, red shift in the background or something?
2: It uses um, the GNOME settings name and uh, tool okay. for that. Yeah. And nice. I think the way that it's implemented is they do it like through color profiles. So like if you take a screenshot or stuff like that, it won't affect it. Nice. You know, it's only on your display. It's not like it's overlaying an image or anything, which is pretty cool.
0: It's funny because that's one of those tools, Nightlight, and, like, and ones like it that I didn't use for years. I didn't have it for, you know, a decade before, but now I can't imagine living without it. It's just yeah. one of those tools that's kind of come up and it's so useful especially yeah. when you're working on things late at night i was just yeah.
3: i had the same feeling where i was like look people were like why would you use red like when redshift became a thing and the, like the flux thing came out and they're like
2: mm-hmm. this is
3: so good like yeah whatever and <laughs> i need color i need accurate color right. and then i just said okay whatever i'll try it like oh okay i, I understand now
2: right <laughs> yeah another big one I'm, I'm actually super excited about is um I don't know if you guys uh, saw, we, we did a big rebranding where we did um, our app scratch that we'd always considered kind of a general purpose text editor. Mm -hmm. Uh, We did a big rebranding on it and now we're calling it elementary code and we're focusing on code editing with it. And Mm, when we first made that announcement, a lot of people were like, okay, you changed the name. So what, (laughs) you know, like big deal. Right. But, um, That kind of change of how we looked at it has led to tons of new features. It's led to redesigning a lot of stuff. Um, It's allowed us to focus and say, okay, this is outside the scope of editing code. So, um, you know, drop that, cut that, whatever, you know, this is inside the scope. So maybe this shouldn't be a plugin. Maybe this should be a core part of the app. And now that this is a core part instead of a plugin, like there's new interesting, cool things we can do. Like the folder manager used to be a plugin, but now that's a core part of the app and it's like so much better than it used to be. Um, mm. Or now out of the box, we have more features for code editing. Um, like we have um, a toggle comments shortcut that's in there now, right? Nice. And mm. like before, when you're thinking of like a general text editor, maybe people didn't prioritize those kind of features. They weren't thinking about it. They were like, oh, I'm just going to jot notes in here. But now that the the mindset has shifted, like, this is becoming a way cooler app. Very and I nice. actually saw um, a poll the other day wow. on the Vala community for Google+, Plus, and uh, they were asking about, like, what apps do you use to write Vala code? And right now, um, they, they had an option for scratch slash elementary code because it's a transition, <laughs> right? But that option had more votes than both g and GNOME Builder combined. Wow. wow.
0: That's awesome.
3: Nice. So people are going to be able to code from scratch now.
2: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh,
0: look at you, Michael. You got the
1: new tagline. Zing. Well, there's all kinds of new features coming in Elementary. We talked about some of them last week with, and it's all a lot of it is focused on little details that make it look better, like the notification icons that are going to have mm-hmm. animations, um, the search icon next to the menu, but. That's coming in fi- in Juno 5.0. So, what made you what made you go with 5.0 rather than continue the the 0.5 scheme?
2: Um, so we have kind of been talking for a long time about um what does 1.0 mean to us and why are we going with the zero dot x naming scheme and um interacting with um different people online on social media um there seemed to be a lot of confusion about um, when we did a stable release and we said, Hey, this is, you know, 0.4. Like people still kept referring to it as being a beta and it was causing people to say, Oh, well I'll try it after it hits 1.0. Like I'm not going to touch a beta. I don't want to deal with the unstable, you know, even though this is a, this is a stable release. Right. And so um, we, we'd been talking for a while about like, okay, you know, are we ready for a 1.0? What does that mean to us? And a lot of the things that we talked about was, well, before we go 1.0, we want to make sure that uh, we're not relying on any of, like, the GNOME settings panes being imported into our system settings. And we don't anymore. Those are fully native now. And, okay, well, we don't want to rely on Ubuntu Ayatana uh, indicators. We want to have our own indicators in the panel. And now we have a full set of those. Um, or, you know, we want to make sure that we're full GTK3 everywhere. And we did that. And uh, so we kept going through, like, what does it mean? And checking all those off. And we're to a point now where we think that the, the state of Elementary OS has evolved and grown to be a fully competent and independent product. Um, the desktop environment is more mature than it's ever been. It's available on other distros now. Uh, the applications are are way better than they've ever been, and um, we think that it's it's ready to have that version bump. And we talked about doing the 1.0, um, but then we decided that it would be easier and make more sense in the long run and allow us to kind of sync up version numbers as we went um, if we just kind of dropped the leading zero and went.
3: Uh, up to 5.0. Right. So instead of just people going, having being confused by being beta or not, you can just say like those, the the number order doesn't really necessarily matter. It's just like five, six, seven continue like that is already going.
1: Right. So Mm -hmm. is there going to be a point where Juno is available as a beta to test?
2: Yes. Uh, So we're getting pretty close right now. We're just kind of taking through the regressions list. And um, I, I think that cuz we're we're trying to get like um all these big features in so that when we release the beta like it's feature complete and it's not just like a total piece of crap and then we can just you know <laughs> Dude, people never issue.
0: read the beta part, by the way, <laughs> it and be like, "What is? It's not working." Yeah,
2: like what? Beta. What the hell? Where's my lock screen? Really right. Locked.
0: There's Michael's comment, but That's you know that, that they would do what? that. I would
2: never notice that. <laughs> you would
1: <laughs> know that they would do that.
2: Yeah, so we want to make sure that, like, you know, we don't have like massive regressions in there, and it's just like little bugs and stuff that we can just kind of pick off.
0: In this day and age, beta practically means you've released the full product because every time someone even tries to release like a beta game or anything, the first thing you see is this piece of crap has this bug here. Like they don't, it doesn't calculate in anyone's mind anymore that beta means you're testing. Hello. Definitely a good decision in my opinion. Yeah. Rocco approved and I approved. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So the
1: next couple of questions we have uh, are coming from patrons. So to quote you or the website, I should say elementary operates on a task based rather than a time based for system releases. So you don't you don't have a release date. You have it when it's ready. So what are the qualities that you have to see before you say this is ready to be released?
2: Right. So um. Historically, we've done releases built on um, the Ubuntu LTS releases. So as far as like the most kind of time base we do is um, looking at when the LTS is coming and going like, okay, we're not going to release before that date, you know, or like this is far enough away that, you know, we're not going to wait for the next one, right? Mm-hmm. But um, for for our release, Style, we kind of go, what are um, the features that we'd like to build out for this release? And what are um, major issues that we'd like to resolve? And we kind of put together a task list and then we work through all of that. And um, then when we're getting to a point that we feel like we're either too close to the next LTLS or it would be too far away from the previous you know, trying to hit that sweet spot of keeping things fresh. And then we kind of go, okay, what's super important, you know, cut all the features that we had planned. We'll pump them to the next release, uh, focus on cleanup. Um, let's get our translator situated. It should fix with the string freeze, you know, and then, and then we kind of like tie a little book, nice little bow on it and, and put it out. <laughs> nice. Nice.
0: So currently you're on 16.04. Juno's going to bring us to 18.04, and I, I want you to be completely honest here with, especially with the con section. You can't you can't sugarcoat it. <laughs> so what what are some of the pros of 18.04 you're seeing, and then what are some of the things that you're seeing that you're kind of concerned with?
2: Well, anytime we move um, to a new base, there's always like the struggle of uh, yay, we got a ton of new APIs. And, <laughs> ah, crap, we got a ton of new APIs. <laughs> you know, so it's, it's, uh, it's awesome because we're able to do new features like Nightlight um, that weren't available before. Um, we're able to do more with GTK being on the latest version. Um, we're going to get better hardware support and better performance from a new kernel. Um, you know, so there's a lot of cool stuff like that that comes from being on fresher repositories. Uh, and also any work that we had done with upstreams that we're waiting to trickle down onto, right? So like the way that it's set up with us having to get packages from um, upstreams, we could have done work with an upstream like a year or two ago and we're waiting for the new release before we can use it, right? Gotcha. So like that's something that um, is really cool about bumping up to a new release um, but also when we do that, then there's a lot of like, okay, what broke, like what APIs changed? Um, yeah. you know, oh man, this dbus interface isn't available anymore. We have to find out what the new name is or, you know, oh, um, the GTK CSS, um, API changed. And so what do we have to style differently or like trying to track down regressions is like a huge con when we move to a new base.
0: So no specific head scratchers, but just yeah. overall.
2: Uh, I mean, like, specific things that we had to do with this one was, um, like I said, the GTK CSS changed a lot from 16.04 to 18.04, Mm -hmm. uh, which is really good, but it also was a lot of work. And I I tried to get ahead of that early um, so that we we had something usable um, so that people could be running uh, the daily ISO um, because the style sheets are, like, so involved these days that, like, you can have a completely unusable system if your style sheet isn't good. So that was wow. something I tried to get out of the way um, super early, so that people could actually run the system. Uh, we've had changes to um, Dbus interfaces for things like um, UPower, uh, which meant that, like uh, for a while, the brightness sliders didn't do anything and uh, <laughs> stuff like that. You know, I, something we're still actually working on in the daily ISO is light lockers broken, um, so you don't have any screen locking. So we got to get that fixed. Um, so there, there's stuff like that where it's like you find out what broke. You know? Well, that's not <laughs> a problem for you, Michael,
0: because you don't ever lock your screen, right? Yeah. <laughs> or does yours yeah, never is go correct. into sleep correct, mode? Yeah. One of those ones I know you don't utilize pretty much never in w- either one of those. You're like, Hey, elementary is <laughs> good as it is. Just ship it. Man. You don't know, have to worry about that feature for Michael. Yeah, I don't need, I don't need a
3: lock screen or <laughs> sub- suspending or hibernation is good to go. I do. I do.
1: <laughs> Keep working on it, man. <laughs> <sighs>
3: so uh, another patron question was, you uh, know, related to something we talked about earlier about the icons um, so that the the, the, main, the main question is like everybody knows that the, the elementary is one of the biggest reasons why elementary is, is, is considered beautiful is because the icon set is so well done and so cohesive. Uh, but the, the only negative I've ever seen people talk about is that when you add a new application that is not a part of the icon set, it kind of just, it just doesn't flow well at all. And mm-hmm. like a lot of people do add applications that are not, you know, having that being considered to be put into the icon set. Um, is there any plan or you know future roadmap where that you would consider adding icons that are not necessarily using the elementary style but would like make them look better in the dock if they were to install them
2: um no um our stance on that is kind of like it would be totally unscalable for us to try to do that it would be a never-ending project because there's always going to be like an infinite amount of new apps um what we're trying to do instead is um, we're trying to work with developers who are publishing their applications in App Center and give them tools and templates and advice and write articles. And um, we built, um, actually recently went through and, and did a, a way more expansive color palette to try to make it easier um, for um, not only uh, third party developers, for ourselves as well to um, make like gradients that make sense that match and look like the ones that we use in the other icons or like try to make yeah. sure that the rules are really clear uh, and try to make it easy for um, people to ship icons that that look right.
3: Would there be any interest if like a community project was built around uh, like making up a fork of the icon set and just kind of like seeing if people would submit them?
2: Um, I think that it would probably be better if we could try to get those into upstreams of uh, yeah. the applications, right? Um instead of trying to carry a bunch of assets that may or may not like ever even be used in the operating system. Like right. let's let's talk up to like LibreOffice. Um I guess they recently shipped like uh, a elementary style icon theme that you can l- use with yep. LibreOffice. Right? So let's Maybe talk to the upstreams and figure out how um we can get them to have those icons available, and maybe when they install their application, um, that they install these community icons for a different, you know, sets or whatever. I, like yeah. that's a hard thing about being a cross-platform application, right? Is like how do you, yeah, how do you, how do you blend in and conform with platform rules, right?
3: Yeah, most most just say not even try, but like right. it is nice yeah. to like LibreOffice is finally trying.
2: <laughs> yep. Yeah, so it, it's hard. There's there is kind of like a hard standoff between. Like, um, you know, whose responsibility is it to take care of this kind of thing, yeah. right?
3: Yeah, I can I can understand that.
4: Yeah, sure. um, Daniel, for those who are currently on Loki, they're obviously going to get really excited that there's a new Juno coming out because there's nothing better than, I'm on my distribution. Yep, there's a nice bright, shiny one coming out. Yeah. Is there an upgrade path for them or will they have to reinstall?
2: I think that the way it's looking right now, they're probably going to have to reinstall. And I hate saying that. I know it's a bad answer and nobody likes that. Um, But we we are actively um, working on trying to build a good upgrade path. And um, that's actually something that we've been discussing a lot with the new installer that we're working with System76 on. And there's been a lot of discussions about um, more... um, like atomic style installs where we're trying to figure out like how can you cleanly separate and upgrade the base operating system and preserve like the user settings and things like that. And some of the major challenges that we have right now are with things like um, externally added software repositories and how um, when you you have no knowledge or expectation that if we try to upgrade those, like will it just completely break package management on that user system?
3: And, and also like, the PPAs might not even be compatible with a new version anyway.
2: Right. So like um, I think as far as I know, uh, like Ubuntu just straight up like disables all of them when they do an upgrade, yeah. yep. right? And so th- there's concerns like that, like... Like there's a lot of like technical challenges to it, and I think that we're getting to a place where we have more of the technical foundation to be able to do release upgrades. But I don't, I don't think it's going to make it into this release, unfortunately.
3: Yeah, that makes sense. Um, it's somewhat related as far as like um, you know keeping up to date with different things. Uh, I'm just curious that. You have uh, Epiphany is switched you switched to your main browser for default in Elementary now. Mm-hmm. So, what is, have you seen any significant problems switching to uh, to Epiphany? And if if you do find problems, do you have do you have a direct connection with the GNOME team for you know fixing those up- upstream?
2: Yeah, actually, uh, the uh, main developer for Epiphany hangs out in our Slack channel, and he's super cool and responsive. And um, nice.
1: that's always convenient.
2: <laughs> yeah, and
3: if upstream is downstream all the time, that's great.
2: <laughs> right, and, and so like one of the things that was super awesome going into this release is so uh, in Loki we carried like a big old patch set to do all kinds of stuff and change the UI around and and do various things um, in Epiphany to kind of make it do things we wanted. And so this time around when uh, we went to upgrade, um, to the new version of Epiphany, we were able to drop like a ton of patches. Um, a lot of stuff like made it upstream features and, and options and things like that, that, um, it's just way more maintainable for us. And it's cool that, um, you know, those kind of features and stuff made it into, uh, everybody else that's using Epiphany and, Mm -hmm. um, and, and yeah, it's, it's just, um, Michael's been super cool about like, Hey, you know, how can, um, I help you guys and what can we do to make, um, Epiphany better for elementary S users. And actually he gave a talk at QuadEC about it and whoa, whoa, whoa. Like, like, he's super cool. So
0: now in Epiphany, I have, I haven't really utilized it as a main browser before. I mean, I played with it within elementary, but then, you know, I go to what I'm used to where I have all my settings at like, a. Uh, Firefox or something like that it, is Epiphany a, a, a one browser solution meaning if you want to watch Netflix through it or DRM content does it have that capability yet or would you still have to have a separate browser to, to, to use that type of content
2: um, I don't think DRM playback works um, I'm not sure because I don't really watch Netflix on my computer um, but I, I don't think that works but in the new version there is uh, Mozilla Sync support nice. so uh so yeah if you're if you're coming from firefox or if you have firefox on other devices um then you can use a mozilla sync with epiphany and it'll keep all your stuff in sync Which that's is cool. pretty cool so that helps you awesome it really quickly yeah <laughs> yeah i, like I think that. that's that's like a killer feature that um stops a lot of people from using um, a native browser is going like well it doesn't work with all my other stuff Right. Right. So hopefully um, that'll open the door for more people to be like, okay, cool. Like I get all the like native UI good stuff and I don't have to abandon like all my settings and and history and all that stuff.
0: Yeah, that's huge. I mean, uh, when I was playing uh, with it, I was like, wow, this is gorgeous, but it doesn't have my bookmarks. Let me go install Firefox and sync all those across. But now I won't have to do that. That's pretty (laughs) awesome.
3: Also, I like the, the Epiphany has this one hidden feature that I wish they would make more like less hidden where you can have like web apps built with Epiphany Mm -hmm. and like, it just like the individual session based web apps, like in Epiphany is so fantastic that I, I have it just installed just for that feature.
2: Yeah. I think that something that's really advantageous about having a native web browser is that we know that it's being tested. Um, Like we ran into a huge problem uh, within the last few months. And I think it's still not fixed upstream. Um, where Google Chrome tried to do some browser detection or some um, desktop environment detection, and it decided that if you're on elementary OS, when you maximize the window, you don't need window controls anymore. And there's nothing we can do about that, you know? And of course, people get mad at us, and they're like, "Well, you know, why is it broken on Elementary OS?" And We're like, "I don't know."
0: <laughs> Let me pull up my direct line to the Google headquarters.
3: And yeah,
2: <laughs> where you immediately.
3: Yeah, it's also super convenient. They made their own toolkit for the Windows, so that's yeah, even, it's really- even more impossible to mess with.
2: <laughs> right.
0: So we talked about collaboration earlier. We've had System seventy six on. You mentioned them in a, in a uh, prior comment, but Elementary and o- OS and System seventy six coming together. Seems like a beautiful thing to me and a great combination of talent. So, can you tell us about how this relationship with them got started? How did you guys get synced up?
2: Yeah. So, the first time I met Carl was at uh, UDS a long time ago and he was super excited. I had no idea who he was, but he came up to, um, a table uh, at the bar we were hanging out and he was like hey man check out this laptop like this is super cool and he's like like look at all like it's all like super native you know built for open source and everything and he was so excited about it and i was like oh yeah how much is it and he told me and i was like dude i can get a macbook for that price <laughs> <laughs> and and that's how I met Carl and you were uh, not very sensitive to him showing I, you I had boy. no idea I had no idea who he even was. I felt he like, broke like his heart, as man. soon as he walked away, the guy sitting across the table, he looks at me and he goes, "Dude, he's the CEO of that company." I was like, "No." <laughs> <laughs> <You know? laughs> If we ever have him on and we ask
0: him what's the worst experience of your life, that (laughs) story's going to come up. I have a feeling.
2: Yeah, but uh, but no, they're um, they're super awesome and like I I met up with Carl a bunch of times at other UDSs, and it's always been cool to like see what he's working on. He's like super passionate about hardware and and really interested in um, taking full advantage of it and trying to push um, hardware support and capabilities for the Linux desktop. And um, they're super interested in like being at the cutting edge of like machine learning and engineering and stuff like that, which is super cool and inspiring. It's awesome to talk to them about like the projects that they're working on. And um, so uh, Cassidy James, which is uh, one of the co-founders of Elementary, um, he actually started working at System76 as a, a, I think he was working as a front end web developer at the time. And then when they decided they want to do um, Pop OS, um, it was just kind of like, a, oh, hey, like, maybe you shouldn't work on web stuff anymore. Like, let's do this instead, you know? <laughs> and um, that's been super cool for us because um, he has like this broader experience and perspective of working on these two different distros and trying to serve these two different customer bases and uh, thinking about how can we do things in a way that more people can benefit. And how can how can I help bridge the gap between um, distros that are trying to target different audiences? So I mm-hmm. think that's been a super awesome experience, and um, building a strong relationship with them about. Like different components that we can collaborate on has been has been really cool.
0: Well, I, we love their passion. I'm glad you mentioned that. They get so excited about their products and it makes you get excited about their products too. but I, I just wanted to let you in on a hint in case you didn't know they're starting to manufacture their own stuff, and they've got really powerful lasers, and they won't let us <laughs> have access to
2: them. And we yeah frustrated about it yeah I know mm-hmm. I know I keep going, hey, hey, hey Carl, <laughs> I want to build a computer, Carl <laughs> <laughs> and, and he just says, me too. Go away. <laughs> yeah. You're not using my laser. Does he say go get a MacBook? <laughs> <laughs> All right. So
1: with the collaboration with System 76, you're working on a new installer, and you. Uh, I'll quote you from the Medium blog where you say the existing Ubiquity front end code was a lar- was large and confusing. It was a Python project that made even the simplest of changes difficult. So you could read about the plans, but can you tell us what what made it so hard, and maybe the the highlights of the new installer?
2: Right. So um, this article was written in collaboration with like a lot of different people. So um, that insight was more taken from uh, people that were closer to the service on that. But from my understanding of it, um, some of the big problems with Ubiqui- Ubiquity um, was kind of the fact that. When it came out, it was the hot new thing, and nothing like it was really done before. Mm -hmm. And so it was kind of the first good example of what an installer should be like for desktop Linux. And since then, um, requirements have changed, hardware has changed, um, the nature of what we think a good installer and onboarding experience should look like has changed.
3: And ubiquity is not.
2: <laughs> yeah. And there's there's also um a lot of problems from them in that they have to service all the flavors. And if a design change in ubiquity isn't possible or beneficial for all the different flavors, then that's like a really hard sell, right? Yeah. You're asking all these different downstreams to do big work so that you can make ubiquity better for you. Right. Right. So um, the, the biggest difference between Ubiquity and the new installer that we're working on is that um, we, we kind of looked at it and we thought that the way that OEM installs are done right now is like a whole separate process. And um, the problem with that is that we don't know how good our OEM installs are because we never install that way. We're never testing it. We're mm-hmm. using it regularly. So um, we want to take this approach that every install is an OEM style install. And that solves that problem for us. But it also makes it easier for situations like, um, which we hear this from our, our users all the time, is I downloaded Elementor OS and I put it on a computer and I gave it to someone else. Right. And that's an OEM style install right. because yeah. that person afterwards is going to go set it up. They're going to create their user. They're going to log into their accounts. You know, they're going to go through their whole own onboarding process, you know, separate from the installation process. So that's that's kind of the major differentiating and thing about it is splitting up um, installation as one process that might be performed by a completely different person than onboarding.
3: Nice. I've done that myself, actually.
4: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So another collaboration that you've had um, with System76, and this is not really specific to Elementary, but it's like for the wider Linux community, is the secure by default uh, campaign that you're that you're trying to push. So, how are you going to get? Generic Linux users like me, bit of a cynic, never used a VPN, never encrypted my hard disk. Don't see the reasons why I have to. How are you going to go about pushing this initiative and making me sit here and think? Do you know what? They're right. I do need to encrypt my stuff. How's your How's your approach, and how How are you finding that at the moment?
2: Yeah. So this is something that um, Cassidy actually came up with and has been working on a lot. And one of the first things that um, I think started the conversation was when people started looking at like HTTPS and presenting that in web browsers. And, um, we, we have like different little mantras that we try to use internally a lot to keep us on track. And one of them is, um, this design principle that Dieter Ram put forward, which is good design is honest. And when we talk about being honest through good design, what we mean is that when we tell users something like that should be a true and factual representation. And so when we tell a user that HTTPS is secure, that's not really truthful. Um, HTTPS is good, but it's not Mm -hmm. secure. It's just better. You know, using HTTP is less secure so we want to kind of flip the script in that way and and say, um, you know, we're going to be honest about things like HTTPS or when you're connecting to uh, wireless, we're not going to tell you that uh, WPA2 is secure. We're going to tell you that not having any password is insecure. And mm-hmm. and so that's kind of where the secure by default campaign started was talking about how can we be more honest with our security language Uh, And system 76 actually were the ones who wanted to push um, doing full disk encryption. And uh, we started talking about ways of um, presenting that in the installer in a way that is transparent and simple and easy um, because people are using full disk encryption on their phones and tablets and, uh, you know, their other devices and they don't know um, that they're using it because it just works. And, (laughs) It's so, been for years too, right? Wow. So we, we want to make that the same on desktop Linux and say, hey, you know, we should be secure out of the box. Uh, we should be honest about how we talk about security things with our users, and let's figure out how we can bring security to our users through usability decisions.
3: Nice. So is, is, it, is this going to be like the 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 Pop OS secure the secure by default? is that going to be a like just on that you don't have to choose it in the installer or is it going to be a part of the installer as well?
2: So right now the way it's set up is there's a screen in the installer that you get to and um, it um sells is probably not the right word, but it like shows you, you know, strongly like, hey, suggests. Yeah. <laughs> it shows like, Hey, this is disc encryption. Um, this is what's good about it. Um, this is the potential negative effects of enabling it. And there's a big old blue button that's like, yeah. And then there's a, a little gray button off in the corner that's like, nah. Nice. We thought about doing that. Like, no, I hate security. <laughs> right.
0: So, are there any other, I, I love the collaborations. Is there any other work going on with System 76 that you can uh, talk about?
2: Um, well, one thing that we're really interested in is they've been, um, so they have the benefit of having like a hardware lab, right? Mm-hmm. And that's something that we totally do not have as a distributed team. And so I abuse Cassidy all the time by going, Hey, can you test this in the hardware lab? <laughs> and, um, they, they've been testing a lot of stuff with multi display and uh, high DPI And the kind of conflicts that they have there, like when you have a high DPI display in your notebook, but you connect to like an external low DPI display. And how do we make this work nicely with X, which has no idea what DPI is. And um, so they've got a lot of interesting work there around uh, this high DPI daemon that uh, throws up a dialogue and asks you like how to deal with different situations or tries to automatically deal with situations that it knows Mm. how to do. And so trying to make that support like w- much more fluent um, in the X world that we live in right now. And so that's yeah. something that that I'm really interested in and in trying to look at um, how we could use that in elementary West, too.
0: I like your overall plan here, because if you keep bugging him enough, he might just send you a whole load of computers for free. Right. And make you leave them alone. <laughs> that's
2: genius, man. Why didn't we think of this? I'll just put him up in the background and like every time I go on a podcast it'll be like sponsored by. System Yeah. <laughs>
0: Love it.
3: Nice.
2: Like, yeah. Maybe I'll convince Carl to pay me to play video games or something. I'll be like, Hey, system 76. <laughs> hey, that'd be awesome.
3: <laughs> that'd be great. Too. You <laughs> just twitch it. Right. But so, uh, the collaboration has been, is becoming like more apparent. I, I think it's, it's probably been around for a long time and it has been in most cases, but it's been a lot more, um, I guess more public now these days with all the different distros and the different projects and companies that are all working together do you think that this is going to be something like in the future that we're going to see more and more of it? Or, you know, I guess really, how could we get other projects to be more open and public about doing the same things that you're kind of doing with system 76?
2: Yeah, I think um, actually I have to thank uh, Martin Wimpress a ton for um, kind of his insights about publicizing things more Um, because we do like, do a lot of stuff in the background and then people cause we're not talking about it. They're like, Hey, why don't you do that thing? And we're like, oh, we are doing that thing. It's like, well, you <laughs> didn't tell them how do they know? You know, like they, they don't know that. Right. Like unless you go out there and you write the blog posts and you let people know what you're working on, like they don't know. Right. Yeah. Cool. And so uh, we have to view the lens of this outside observer And say, like, what are the things that we want people to know that we're doing? And what are the things that, like, project the values of who we are as a company and as a volunteer community and, like, the structure of our organization? Or, like, what are the things that we see people saying that we want to let them know, like, hey, you know, this is what we stand for or this is what's coming next? Um, you know, and, and trying to be way better with our communication is, I think, something that more and more open source uh, organizations are learning is super important uh, in order to have like happy volunteers, in order to have happy customers, and, and in order to build good relationships with other organizations.
4: I agree. Um, well, one of the things that has been getting some press recently, um, both negative and positive... Um, is the Elementary's team to push towards um, the funding of, of, of their projects. Um, and this can, can be seen on the Elementary front page where it says, you know, please purchase um, Elementary OS. And more recently, into the introduction of your software center, where there is both free and paid-for apps. So what is it from your perspective? Why did you feel it was really important to start going down this route and how did you how did you get that balance so that it wasn't like whack in your face, but was a nice subtle introduction? Um, and just explain a little bit how you how that came about.
2: Yeah. So, um, well, I mean, for me, you know, personally, um, funding is important because it's how I pay my rent, right? <laughs> and so, if uh, elementary isn't um, a, a profitable, quote unquote. Um, Company, then um, I don't get to live here. So um, (laughs) that's a good. There, you
3: want to have a place to live.
2: We'll see with a sign. Personally, we'll
3: build distro.
0: Right. (laughs) So
2: so personally, that's important to me because um, if elementary gets funding, then I get to do the things that I love to do and get paid for them, which is pretty cool. Um, but I think that funding um can be super important in bigger ways too. Like a lot of people see like profit motives and business and stuff as like an anti-pattern. But like one example that I can give is like validoc.org and validoc.org for a long time was hosted on like somebody's private server somewhere as like a pet project. And like, no, no disrespect at all, because that's like, if you can do that, you're awesome and you're helping and you're contributing. But um, as part of, of elementary's business model, having it that we want developers to build applications and distribute them on our platform, and have we have a business incentive to make sure that there's good tools and good docs and stuff, the company is compelled to pay for the hosting and maintenance of validoc.org, right? So um, having having this kind of business perspective or this funding model is important. Um, for having projects that have like with websites that we have like guaranteed uptime or that we know for a fact that like if someone wants to uh, add or update a library documentation that we have someone on payroll, that's it's his job to do that. Right. Mm -hmm. So um, I think that that having funded projects is super important for ensuring um, that we have consistent, like high quality available, like open source stuff for people to use and enjoy. Um, cool. but it, as far as like pay what you want, um, we kind of came to that conclusion, um, because it's a compromise between like a ton of different concerns and the, the major fighting concerns are one, we need to be able to make money to pay for stuff. Because it costs money to um, have a CDN that serves downloads of elementary OS. Yeah. It costs money to have the servers that build the applications for App Center. And um, it costs money to run payroll to have the people that, that do the things. Um, you know, It costs money to travel or to buy hardware for testing. You know, so we need to be raising revenue somehow. And it needs to be consistent. So things like crowdfunding, um, don't really work because we need to consistently raise like a couple hundred grand like on a regular basis. And, and that's a lot to ask. Um, and on the other end of the spectrum, uh, we want to make sure that the software dev- we develop is widely available and we don't want to lock people out um, that are in countries where the value of their currency doesn't really allow them to participate in the market. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't want to lock mm-hmm. out, uh, people that are, uh, just impoverished wherever they are or students or like anybody that's just like, I just can't really afford access to quality open source software. We don't want to lock those people out. We want to, mm-hmm. we want to take care of them. And there is like kind of a socialist leaning to the pay what you want system where we're saying like, we're we're trying to strike a balance between we need to raise funds um, from people that are able to help us do that, but we don't want to lock out people that are not able to do that. And we saw like a lot of success with the humble indie bundle and stuff like that. Um, And we thought, let's try this um, for elementary OS. And as soon as we switched over to that, we had like a hundred folds, increase in revenue um which sounds like a lot but it's actually like it was like nothing to like something you know (laughs) but 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 it's it's enough it's enough that um i get to do this as my job now which is super awesome right Right. And, and it's enough that we get to pay for our infrastructure and things like that. So
0: Now, one of the things that always struck me as a little odd was like when you, and it's not just elementary, it's all of them. When they are asking for that donation, set the point that I'm downloading it. And I'm like, I don't know if I want to give you money yet. It could be horrible. So I always wondered why there's not like a reminder with afterwards, like, hey, do you want to donate to this project? Because that would be the point after I started using it, after I downloaded it, that I'd probably be more likely to be like, yeah, this is definitely worth some some money.
2: Yeah. And we've definitely struggled with the idea of, um, like nag screens and stuff and, um, nag screens. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, that's, that's 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 what what they are. Right. So, um, when we try to, um, talk about that kind of stuff, the feedback is usually like, no, don't do that. That's what's going to make me not want to use this. Right. Interesting. Um, but, with um, we we did talk about some changes that we're going to make in App Center, um, which are, um, trying to get that workflow, like you said, of some people will go through and they'll download it for free the first time because they haven't tried it before. These are indie apps they've never heard of. They might not like it, you know, they don't know yet, and so they want to be able to try for free. And then there are a lot of people that are willing to come back later. Um, and so we need to figure out like how do we remind people and give them opportunities to come back and support these developers uh, without being annoying or interrupting their workflow, things like that. So um, the method that we're gonna try in App Center is that uh, we're gonna reprompt prompt uh, at update time. And so when you go to run updates, then you'll see um, the same, uh, we call it the humble button, right there in your updates view that'll either allow you to say, hey, I wanna pay the suggested price or if you want, you can still just put in zero again and say, no, you know, not this time.
0: Interesting. I love the idea This is- this is kind of a constant struggle within the, the Linux community, even when I first started. But I love the idea that you guys aren't just focused on yourselves. You're focused on the developers as well and how they get paid so that they can make a living off doing this because this stuff takes a ton of time and a ton of commitment. And you've got all the support that goes along with it for everybody that has an issue, something's not working, et cetera. So it's just it, it's awesome to see that coming. And I think it it, it brings more to the Linux community overall. But well, one of the things that I noticed kind of outside of the, the, the money is, you know, ratings for developers and things. So I always go in if I'm using a specific application in a software store and talk about, you know, in the, in the ratings, oh, how much I love the app or how great it is or, or if, if it's horrible, maybe, as well. <laughs> but it, there's no streamlined process for that. So you as a distro and there are other distros out there could go grab an app that Michael goes and writes. And he has no way of knowing, at least that I know of that he's got 36 people on your distro that said, hey, this app sucks because this doesn't work and has no kind of feedback to him to know there's a big problem unless they go after him on his site and talk to Mm -hmm. him about it. So is there a way to start kind of, you guys are obviously doing some leading in this area. Is there a way to kind of fix that and bring it together into a more centralized approach so that developers are getting feedback, they know where there's issues, or is there any thoughts on that?
2: Yeah, so I think there's there's kind of two problems, right? One is that um, we want to give more information um, to users about applications so they make an informed decision before they go to um, purchase or download it, right? And we want to give more feedback to developers so that they can improve their applications, right? Um, and on the first side of it, um, one thing that we're currently looking at is... Um, I I don't know the out loud pronunciation. I just, just ORS um, is like the open um, age rating service or something like that. And it's, it's kind of a content um, rating thing that you can go through and say like, oh, my application contains this or it doesn't contain that. And just kind of give um, users more information about what's in applications as far as content of like, oh, this application um, wants to use location services or, oh, this application has in-app payments mm. or this is the kind of language that's in this application or this is the kind of artwork that's in it. Yeah. And so trying to surface more information like that so you don't have to read through, like, a ton of reviews to find out, like, does this game have swearing in it? Like, you can just see yes, you know? Interesting. Um, so that's one of the things we're really interested in as far as presenting information to users. Uh, we actually spend a whole day... Um, in the whiteboard room on the last app center sprint talking about ratings and reviews. And it's just such like a complex project. I feel like that we need to have a whole nother week long sprint just to talk about ratings and reviews um, yeah. because like current review systems aren't that good. And um, I think that people are slowly deciding that like star ratings are bad Um, you know, we see like Netflix switched over to just like the thumbs up or down and like YouTube goes that way. And like, so everybody's kind of coming to the conclusion that like, okay, maybe star ratings don't tell us the information that we're actually looking for. Um, there is a website called slant that does a really interesting thing where instead of asking people to write free form reviews, they ask them to submit pros and cons. Mm-hmm. and then I you like can upvote it. or downvote you know those pros or cons and so i right. just trying to cut down on like duplicate information and so mm-hmm. there's a lot of interesting ways to try to surface information and mm-hmm. um that's good for developers too right they don't have to wade through tons of duplicate comments right yeah no, that's um, amazing
0: because you think of like the android store you've got you know you've got an app 33,000 5 five-star reviews and then you go and look at it and there's like 500 negative ones are the, the latest ones released that are all one star, but because it all gets kind of calculated yeah. in together, you really don't know that there's something really wrong with this. You just assume thirty five thousand five stars. I'm going to download it. It's got to be great. Uh, but yeah. you don't see all the potential issues of the people trying to say, Hey, there's a big security hole here and uh, nobody else is realizing it. Yeah. Or you
3: make a great app and then they'll say four stars because this one tiny typo, then you, you can't get the other one.
2: Right. Right. Um, Yeah, but one thing that we actually have heard from uh, developers and and kind of watched that's been really cool is just for the fact that developers can release on their own schedule and that we do have Mm -hmm. a link in the footer of each page um, that's the report a bug link and it goes directly to that developer's GitHub page, you know, um, there has been a faster feedback loop. Where nice. users can go in and report issues, and a developer can make a new release right after they fix it, which is super cool. And I think that's yeah. a leading edge that we have on like a lot of other distros right now. Is I need it? to submit
3: Our, my app to the App Center then.
2: You do, you do, <laughs> yeah, because the developers have this tight feedback loop, and we hear developers on other platforms complaining all the time about like, oh, I fixed that bug like two years ago, and it's still not a new Ubuntu. Right. I have that and all the time. There's, <laughs> there's nothing you can do as a developer about that, right?
3: Yeah. Especially when I go to different distros. I try out new distros and I look at the app center and check out my, my app because it's in every distro. And then I look at, oh, there's the reviews. Uh, fixed it, fixed it, fixed right. it. <laughs>
2: Right, and that's a super frustrating experience, both for the users and the developers. So, yeah. trying to cut that feedback loop back and turn it into a positive experience of like, I reported an issue and it got fixed. This is awesome. I love open source. <laughs> you know,
3: yeah that that's that's what we try to do. I, I try to find as many people to have who have comments as, as possible, but like dealing with like repos and the the speed of repo updates is uh, right not not fun.
2: Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So I think um, in the future, something that might be interesting there is looking into how we can um, bring the experience of filing issues uh, more into like a native uh, way or more in like a survey format or um, offering other information to developers and like kind of an app port style. So that when you submit an issue report through App Center, that we can tell you things that users may not think to tell you.
3: Oh, nice. That, that yeah. would be very helpful.
2: Yeah, like if we could give you like a pre a printout of the G settings keys that are associated with your app or something like that, like... Okay, I'm definitely submitting soon. Thank you. That <laughs> like that's not in there right now, but those are the things we're thinking about, right? Well,
3: I mean, even if you think about it, that proves that, that, that you're, you're being innovative in a, in a space that I consider frustration just instantly to the point where I've kind of given up reviews of, of in the app stores for things because like they're either out of date uh, make ridiculous claims for applications that are not even close to what I'm talking, what I'm doing or just w- what, you know, but as far as like the, the getting involved in development of elementary, there's a, there's a tool on your website you link to called bounty source. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I actually, re- I've never used bounty source, but the idea of it sounds fantastic. And I was just wondering how, how well has it been working out for you and you like using it for uh, bounty source for elementary.
2: So a bounty source is pretty cool Um, for people who don't know. It's a way that you can take um, any issue in a bug tracker and you can pop that link in the bounty source and then say like, Hey, if this issue is closed, I will give whoever solves it 50 bucks or a hundred bucks or however much, and people can collaborate and build up a larger bounty. So you can get like 10 people, throw $5 at it, you know, kind of thing. Um, so it's kind of a cool way to crowdfund um, solutions for specific problems. If you're really interested in um, not just general funding, but trying to get specific features or specific problems fixed. Um, it's it's not a primary funding source for uh, elementary by any means, but it is cool to be able to kind of um, give a reward uh, of our volunteers who like, for example, um, I think it was a couple summers ago that we had, um, someone who was like a high school student and he came in and like fixed a ton of issues that had bounties on them. And he bought a new laptop that summer. And, nice. uh, you know, instead of having to go like get a meaningless summer job, somewhere else like he was able to write code and you know earn money for writing code which is which is pretty cool for a student and it's not like necessarily enough money that someone who's a professional engineer is going to be like okay you know i can do this as a job or whatever but um it is something cool that we can try to give to uh, our volunteer community i think
0: you know, I just thought of another collaboration opportunity. You could retell that story of System76 sponsors you with a high school student bought a new laptop, which was a System76. Yeah, there you go. It <laughs> happens to be the Gazelle line, and yeah, sorry.
1: <laughs> so with with everything you're doing with the App Center, with uh, the payments and everything, are you is the idea to break out – because there's a myth that Linux users, open source users don't want to pay for apps – because they want everything for free. And, I, and I, I say that as a myth because that is not the case. So is that the goal of doing that? Well, I wouldn't say is that it's not the goal, but I think you are breaking through that myth, I should say, like that.
2: Yeah. Um, well, I mean, I hate to say that um, statistically, I think that's true. Um, right now, like, a little over 1% of the people who download elementary OS pay for it. And, um, I think we're in the same range for apps right now. Um, so it's something that we're working on. Right. And, um, where I think that I, I like to try to be optimistic about is I don't like the idea that, um, people aren't, paying because they're like bad or something like I yeah. think that if people aren't paying for the apps it's because we're not communicating clearly it's too hard um you know we're, there's something that we can do to make it easier or more clear like why they should pay for these apps because if they can get them for free like why why would you pay for that if you can get it for free right Mm -hmm. and so we need to communicate like what's the value proposition what do you get by participating here and make sure that things are streamlined and not make it frustrating or difficult because if it's more difficult to pay for the content than it is to go get it somewhere for free, then, then nobody's going to want to go through that process. Like yeah. there, there's so many examples in other industries of things like Netflix where it's like, yeah, I'll pay the subscription. That's super easy. Now I can just stream stuff all the time, you know, where it's like by, by hitting this convenience and having a sane price point, you can totally build a business. Um, out of out of content that people can get for free, but it's more difficult or less convenient.
3: Yeah, there's also the benefit of like a lot of for a long time that the Linux community was was very rarely asked to pay anything anyway. Mm-hmm. So like just by asking, I like I was I joined a project at one point and I asked how many donations they got like you know per year or whatever, and uh, they were like, well, we got like ten dollars uh, ever. Yeah. And I was like, wait, why? What do you mean? Like, we've never asked them. People just send it like, well, okay, let's see what happens if we ask. And then we asked and then just, it continuously comes like every couple of weeks or so. There's at least a few. And like, just all you have to do is ask. And a lot of projects don't even bother doing that. So, you know, I think that the, you know, the, the, what you're doing as far as like the, you know, setting up for them to, to, to ask in the first place, even if they don't do it the first time, it still gets in their, in their mind that maybe they should.
2: Yeah, and I think that there's there's totally a lot of a lot of room to introduce um, the idea of hey we should we should fund open source development and to kind of pursue a culture shift and not from a place of thinking that people don't pay because they're bad or wrong, but thinking from a place of like this is an engineering and design problem and how can we solve it? You know, yeah. be positive about how we approach it.
0: I like the shared pool idea because you guys aren't just going out, how can we get more money for elementary? You guys are going out and and finding ways to also fund, like we were mentioning, other developers working on things as well and building that into your platform. So the whole idea of kind of this shared resource, shared pool, getting everybody in there to help everybody out seems to fit perfectly within you know the whole idea and the concepts behind open source and making sure people get... That ability to potentially, especially when they have amazing projects, there are certain projects like Caden Live, for instance, I couldn't live without on Linux. Like I Mm -hmm. I could not be on Linux without Caden Live. It's just that important of an app to me. So I donate to it. I love it. Unfortunately, as a distro hopper, if I donated for every distro I hopped, I'd be broke. So I've got to figure that one out. But, (laughs) uh, you know, I I do like how you guys are bringing everyone into, into the discussion in a way.
1: Thanks. Well, Dan, you have plans for the future, obviously. This is not a, a fly-by-night distro. So do we have to wait till the next blog post before you you know tell people about your future plans? Yeah, give us some goodies. Maybe some well, hidden Easter eggs.
2: Um, so the, the things that are coming down the pipe right now um, is, well, I actually have a draft up that um, just needs to be scheduled that talks about a lot of the technical work that we've done. Um, a lot of people think, um, that we just do like design work and we don't do any technical work. And so I have a blog post that talks about like, um, we have shifted, uh, many of our projects over to the new Mason build system and that we've done some work upstream there, uh, to make Vala support better. And we've done some work there for, um, making localization support better in Mason and like trying to contribute to documentation there. And, um, making our platform better for application developers and um, what are the differences that, that we've made under the hood? Like what are the big changes that we're going through um, on a technical level and not just a design level? So that's a, that's a big blog post that's coming out. Um, And a lot of the things that are going to be coming up at the end of the month as far as like new features and stuff, is uh, just this morning, we have a new uh, shortcut overlay um, that is very similar to the one that was in Unity, where if you hit the super key, they'll pop up a nice little window and show you like all the system shortcuts. Nice. So that's a pretty cool mm-hmm. new feature like we're excited that. about. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, We just landed a quick style uh, switcher in code so that um, when you click the menu, you get a selection between a high contrast, uh, solarized light, and solarized dark. And then Mm. um, obviously when you use the dark theme, like the whole application goes into the GTK dark mode and everything. So that's a pretty cool new feature we're pretty excited about. Nice. Um, We're actually landing a ton of new stuff in code. There's um, stuff in there for like the new... um, the way that we did um, uh, the trailing space program, uh, strip strip trailing space plugin was totally rewritten because uh, there's new features of like GTK Source View and we have like um, spaces, highlight modes and uh, completion features and like all kinds of cool stuff going into code, like keyboard shortcuts and, and like that's like a huge active part right there, which is pretty cool. Um, Bluetooth has some big changes coming to it. Um, because the, uh, Gnome Bluetooth wizard isn't the thing upstream anymore. Um, so we kind of (laughs) looked at like redesigning how we connect to Bluetooth devices. And so it's super easy now when you open up system settings, like it'll automatically search for and list all the available Bluetooth devices in the area. And you can just one click, you know, pair with them and beautiful. Nice.
3: Like that used to be a pain for me at least.
2: I used to hear it all the time in the comments on
0: videos. Does Bluetooth finally work in this distro? Does Bluetooth work in this And now I don't hear it as much because there's been a lot of work uh, done on it, which is great.
2: Another one that we just landed that I almost forgot about, which is actually a really big deal, is that um, now we have, um, when any application tries to use uh, the GeoClue service to get your location, we'll throw up a window telling you what application is doing it and giving you the chance to either allow them to do it or deny them from accessing your location. That's That's awesome. And then you can go into your privacy settings and uh, you can enable or disable that at any time. And it tells you like the level of access they're requesting too. So that it's not just like, oh, a weather app? Sure, I'll give them my location. And then they're like trying to find out your street. Like it'll tell you, like it wants to know this level and then you can decide, do I want to allow that or not?
3: I like the level aspect, especially considering most of them are just like it's either there or not. So, like, yeah. it's, it's much better. Be a fantastic
2: than idea.
4: I love so, yeah, it. We're trying
2: to be really, really more transparent and helpful and give more power to users in terms of privacy, like that.
4: Brilliant. So, talking of help, how can other normal people like myself help you? elementary OS. I mean, obviously the biggest help is going to be donations to make sure that you can continue with the infrastructure and all all the rest of it. But are there other ways that we can help give time? You know, what, what, what do you need help with at the moment? So
2: um, if you go to our website, we have a link up in the header um, that goes to our get involved page. And it's a big old page that talks about like all the different ways that you can get involved with elementary OS. Um, and if you, uh, speak another language, like getting involved with translation, super helpful and, Mm -hmm. uh, English UK and English, uh, Australian or other languages. So it'd be totally awesome to, you know, make sure that we use the bin and all that kind of stuff. Right. (laughs) So, uh, we always need help with localization. Um, and, uh, like you said, funding is obviously super huge. Like the more funding we get, the more in-person meetups that we can do, the more people that we can hire on. Um, if you want to help us support other people that are using elementary us, that's also super awesome. Like getting involved as a contributor on stack exchange is, is super helpful. Um, because there's, there's like 10,000 daily active visitors of that website or something crazy wow. like that. Mm-hmm. So, um, having more people going through and like checking for duplicate answers or, or things like that is always super helpful. And then, um, of course, like if you're a developer, there's links there for, uh, our GitHub page and we have links to bountied issues and issues that we consider bite size, which are issues that you should be able to solve like in a day with like minimal knowledge, you know, it's like starter issues. Um, And then we actually have a bunch of issues that are tagged needs design also. So if you're a designer and we need help uh, with uh, UX work or visual design or anything like that, then you can go in and and we try to frame out like this is what the problem is. This is what the different concerns are. And um, if you see an issue that that has questions that need answered, then you can go in there and and ask more. And we'll try to give you more information to, to to help you get involved with designing on Elementor OS too.
4: Nice,
0: love it. So, listen, you've made it through our gauntlet of questions, (laughs) but there is one more question, and 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 right now, like we're rating you really high, we like you and all this, but this could totally just tank the whole interview. (laughs) Make Make or break. break. break Yeah, this is a make or break question. Uh oh. Are you a gamer?
2: Um yeah
0: <laughs> okay okay so you're kind of making it through there's a little hesitation there but I'm going to let that pass now this next part's the real important part uh, we like to play two games uh, the, well for most of these people they only play one but wow. there are two games that we play here CSGO and Rocket League is there a chance we will ever have a, a time to battle you we're all terrible so don't worry about that a chance to battle you in a live game
2: so Rocket League for Switch is on my wish list I don't have Rocket League yet <laughs> um or csgo i don't have either of those games but i would totally want to play some games i do have um like mario kart and stuff like that like your standard like the switch is my my console but oh, nice. um mainly the kind of gaming that i've been getting into a lot is doing like speed runs so oh, wow. um i have nice. you can watch some videos of me really being really bad at trying to go fast in video games on youtube <laughs> It sounds um,
0: like how we introduce every video we do of gaming. Yeah,
2: so, well, just so this really bad. Um, I, I was getting really into Mario Odyssey runs for a while um, and it just got so crazy that I couldn't keep up with the route. So I haven't done that in a minute, but I've been thinking about trying to run Celeste. I don't know if you guys have played that game. No, mm-hmm. it is. It is an awesome, super like brutally hard platformer game and nice. it feels so good to just like <laughs> play through a level super fast. So cool. I've been really excited about maybe trying to do that one uh, if I get some free time. sound yeah, it, it, be super, it'd be super cool to figure out um, like some games we have in common and maybe we could do a little stream or something, play some multiplayer. Oh, that would be a blast. Yeah, Even yeah.
3: yeah. if we don't have it in common, we can just play CSGO and we're all terrible. So it's fine.
2: <laughs> 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 That's true.
1: Well, Daniel, we would like to thank you for coming on the show and talking to us. Um, Elementary is a beautiful operating system. And not only you, but everybody that works on Elementary behind the scenes that, you know, maybe needs credit. Thank you all for everything that you guys do. Yep. Thank you very much for for having me on the show and and talking about all this stuff. Well, we look forward to covering more events happening in Juno and when it releases. But until then, everybody have a great week. And remember, the journey itself is just as important as the destination thanks everyone bye-bye
0: thank you for listening to another episode of destination linux podcast
2: Yeah, um, it's all Zeb's fault. He talks like more. I'm cool with like an hour or two. Okay. Perfect.
1: All right, so Ryan, you got to cut it down then.
0: All right. <laughs> I've got so many questions though. Am I higher than everybody else?
1: No, actually Michael's higher than everybody else. Of course he is. You always <laughs> try to steal a spotlight, Michael.
3: I was singing, to be fair. So. Were we supposed yeah, to get yeah. high
1: before we came on? It, it, no.
0: <laughs> 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 it depends how <on> this goes. <laughs>